Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divinity. I'm the lead pastor in Asbury. Thank you for joining us. We hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and I hope it's a little entertaining for you as well. Here we go. Now, I'm going to warn you in advance. Um, I got some sort of a head cold from my lovely two-year-old germ-ridden daughter over the end of last week, and... Um, Symptom-wise, it's not too bad, but I can feel my, my throat kind of starting to go, and my voice starting to go out just a little bit. Uh, I'm sort of on the upswing here, uh, so I should be fine, but if I <clears throat> have to take a break to clear my throat like that or cough, I'm just warning you in advance. So you may hear a bit more coughing uh, this week than you're used to, so we're going to dive right in. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, because I've asked you all to read along with me one chapter a day. Um, so I'm recording this. On Monday the 16th, which means we're reading chapter 16. Um, but I want to actually go back a, a little bit and talk about some of the stuff I haven't talked about yet. So in chapter 14, you have right, the, the famous story of Jesus walking on water. I'm going to read it to you. Um, so this is Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. <clears throat> now, we're all really familiar with this story. And we all, I think, kind of imagine it, and we've been taught about it, uh, in, in more or less the same way, right? Peter, Peter, the hot-headed disciple, the rash disciple, the, the one who is <laughs> overconfident in his own faithfulness at times, you know, he calls out to Jesus. He wants to go walk on the water to meet Jesus. He, and Jesus tells him to do exactly that. He leaps out of the boat. He's walking across the water. He, he gets to Jesus, right? And this is something that people sometimes miss. He actually gets to where Jesus is because it says he came to Jesus. Um, and then it's like only then does he realize what's actually going on. And he looks around and he sees the wind and the waves and the storm. <clears throat> And in fear, he loses his faith. He begins to sink. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then Jesus pulls him out of the water and kind of rebukes him. You have little faith. 
Why did you doubt? Like there's disappointment in his voice. And so we turn this into a story of Peter's failings. Uh, and it's not hard to. Peter has a lot of failings. <clears throat> I want to suggest, though, a slightly different interpretation of this story. I want to suggest that maybe we're, we're missing some of the the ethos of it. Peter gets out of the boat. He walks on the water to where Jesus is. Now he has a moment of doubt. And remember, um, you know, if you ever see like a painting of this, of this story, and there's paintings out there of Jesus walking on the water. All those paintings of Jesus walking on the water, when you see them, it's like, it's really tranquil. The water is, is just flat and smooth, and you can see the ripples going out from Jesus' feet, and the sky is calm. But that's not at all what the story describes, is it? It's in the middle of a storm. The wind is picking up. It's blowing the boat. It's making it hard for them to sail across the sea. So maybe not, you know, a full-on thunderstorm yet, but certainly the beginnings of one. The wind is whipping up the water. We live in Corpus Christi. You've driven by the bay when it's really, really windy. You know what it looks like. The waves get bigger. They're foamy. The water is rough. He's walking on the water. Imagine walking on that. It's like, you know, walking on the on ground that's moving and going up and down and there's waves coming out. I mean, the whole thing had to have been a terrifying experience right from the moment he set foot on the water. And he gets to Jesus and, and they're both standing on this water that's going up and down and waves crashing all around him and the wind blowing. And he has a moment of doubt and he starts to sink. And it says he starts to sink. It doesn't say he sinks beneath the wave. He just begins to go down. But what is his immediate reaction? It's not to panic. It's not to thrash around and try and save himself. It's to cry out to Jesus. His instinct. right? Think about this. He's in a moment of sheer panic. He is sinking beneath the water in the middle of the lake. The wind is all up around them. The waves are crashing down. It's a terrifying moment, and his gut reaction, there's no time for thought. He doesn't stop and think to himself, you know, the best thing to do would be to call No, 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 no. This is his reflex. His instinctive gut reaction is to cry out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And I have to imagine that when Jesus grabs him, he's not rebuking him in the sense of Peter. Peter, you of little faith, Peter, why did you doubt? I think it's more in the sense of, Peter, <laughs> come on, man, I got you. You don't have to doubt me. I'm here. I think it's much more loving and good-natured than we tend to give it credit for. Much more understanding of the situation. Peter, come on, man. 
You know I've always got your back. You know I'm always here for you. And then here comes the best part of the story, the part that's not even mentioned in the text, but that we know happened. They walked back to the boat. Do you see? Because they get back to the boat. Peter doesn't just walk out to where Jesus is. Peter then walks back to the boat, hand in hand with his Lord, on the water. I don't think this is a story about Peter's failings. I don't think Peter was particularly embarrassed by this story. I think Peter probably trotted this story out at every dinner party for the rest of his life. Oh, John, you beat me to the tomb on Easter morning? Let me tell you, by the time I walked on water with... Did you ever walk on water with Jesus, John? I, did, I didn't think so. No, that was just me, wasn't it? I think that's how Peter handled this story for the rest of his life. It's an incredible story. He walked on water with Jesus. No one else alive ever did that. He walked out to him, had one little shaky moment, which Jesus, I think, seems to have laughed off, and then they walked back to the boat. I love that image. It's really, I, I, I love it. I think sometimes when, when Jesus rebukes the disciples, sometimes it's tempting for us to lean into the harsh side of it. But I also think that when God rebukes people, there's also very often an element of love and understanding in the midst of that. In the same way that when those of us who have children, when we rebuke our children, sometimes it's not really a harsh rebuke, right? Sometimes they make a silly mistake. And, and when we correct them, we do so in a way that's very loving and understanding. <laughs> no, of course you don't do that, you weirdo. Come on. Sometimes that's how God handles this too. God can be harsh and strict when it's required, but he can also be loving and understanding. So, moving on, moving on. Um, I love that story. I love that look at it. <clears throat> Um, and there's probably a sermon in there somewhere, but I'll try not to preach on it when we read, read this in the other Gospels. Um, I want to talk for a little bit now about um, this bit in Matthew 16, which we're reading the day that I record this podcast. When Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. So it's in 16, verse 13 through 20. Uh, now when Jesus came to the district of uh, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means the son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
So let's talk about this for a minute. He tells him to tell no one he's the Christ for the same reason I mentioned last week. He keeps telling people not to, to go and talk about all the miracles he's performing. He's trying to still kind of keep his ministry below the radar. But that's not the most important part of the story. He, 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 this is when, presumably, this is when he gives Peter the nickname of Peter or Petros or Rock. Petros is literally just the word that means rock. He calls Peter Rock. Much like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. course that rock has nothing on this rock um so he tells him you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it now we love this verse in the modern church we do it's great it's really inspiring right hell will not prevail against the church here's the problem here's the problem we normally interpret this or envision it as as the forces of hell are like assaulting the church, but they will not win. We'll stand firm. There's one problem with that interpretation, though. Jesus tells Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Now, a gate, a gate is a defensive structure. A gate does not attack you. You attack the gate. Jesus is not giving Peter an image of the forces of hell assaulting the church and the church standing firm amidst the tide of evil. He is giving Peter an image of the church assaulting the forces of evil, battering down the gates of hell and prevailing against all the evil and wickedness arrayed against it. The church is meant to be on the offensive we're meant to be taking the fight to the enemy. We can't be content to be huddled up within our buildings, within our own defensive structure, letting the tide of evil pass us by. We are meant to be out there on the front lines, taking the fight to the devil, proclaiming the gospel everywhere we go, showing the love of Christ into the deepest, darkest places of our world, fighting the fight for justice I could go on and on. There is, again, probably a whole sermon in there. But for now, I just want you to ponder that. Ponder what that means, that we are meant actually to be taking the fight to the enemy, to be assaulting the gates of hell. Because the gate is a defensive structure. We're not the ones letting the tide of evil pass us by. We are meant to be the ones out there battering down the gates of hell. That, that is what Peter is the rock of. Peter is the foundation on which we will assault the enemy. I've got two more things in, in Matthew that I want to talk about in this podcast. Um, <clears throat> you won't, I don't, well, you might read both of these this week. I forget what dates are coming up. Anyway, uh, let's talk about Jesus' teaching on divorce. And I say this because I know we've got people in our church who are divorced and i've had questions about this stuff before and so in matthew 19 just starting in the first verse of the chapter now when jesus had finished these sayings he went away from galilee and entered the region of judea beyond the jordan and a large crowds followed him and he healed them there and pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause he answered have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. <coughs> they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. <clears throat> now let's talk about this for a minute. Because this is a hard line stance on divorce that we in the Protestant church in general, and in particular the Methodist church, have not really adopted and we need, we need to talk about what it means so first off let's let's talk about how divorce worked in jesus's day and age first off a woman could not get a divorce uh if you were a woman and you were married you had no option to get out if you wanted to get out you were in that marriage uh, but the husband the husband had the option to divorce you and uh the law the laws of moses allowed a divorce for pretty much any reason um, they were they were more permissive than you might think. Um, but they were being abused. And so it was entirely possible. And, and in fact, it probably happened that men who grew tired of their wives and wanted to marry someone younger, more attractive, uh, would write their wife a certificate of divorce, boot her out, go marry this other lady, and then they were free to sleep with her. Because the one thing that the Jewish people, by this time in history at least, were really good at was following the letter of the law and not breaking it. And so they weren't committing adultery, they weren't going to go sleep with someone they weren't married to, but they had found a loophole, or at least the men had, Found, the men had found a loophole. They could divorce their wife for whatever reason if they wanted to go sleep with someone else. All they had to do was divorce their wife and marry that one. And there was no limit on how many times you could be divorced and how many times you could be married. So in theory, you could divorce all these women once you were done and go marry another woman. It was no big deal if you had a bunch of children with all these women because actually for them, having lots of children was a good thing. It increased the wealth of your household in all sorts of ways. So the men are having all the fun they want, and the women are the ones who suffer. Because once that wife is divorced, she's going to have a really hard time marrying again. So Jesus tells them, yeah, Moses, Moses created that law because he knew that your hearts were hard, and he knew that, um, he, he knew that divorce was something that he had to account for. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now, this is really interesting. Jesus does not refute them or, or base his teaching on marriage on the laws of Moses. He goes back to creation itself. He goes all the way back to Genesis. He, what he does is he goes back to God's 
original intent when he created humanity. Now, this is the kind of thing we're going to be talking about when I start my in-person studies on February 5th on marriage and human sexuality. Not the laws, but the original intent of God when he created us. Because that's what Jesus does. In his most clear, most explicit teaching on marriage and sexuality, Jesus doesn't go back to the law. He goes back to the, the creation of humanity and what God's purpose in creating humanity was. And says, look, that's what we're meant for, that kind of partnership. Now, obviously, if I'm going to do a three-week study on that, it's it, there's a lot to unpack there that has massive implications for how we understand marriage and sexuality and gender and all of these things. And we're going to dive into that in detail in person on February 5th. For now, what Jesus is doing, if we're just going to focus a little bit on his teaching on divorce, he says, look, don't, don't look at the law as the ultimate source of wisdom. The law is not about creating the ideal. The law is there to place limits on your ability to harm each other. But the ideal, the, the thing you should be striving for, is not the law. It is God's creational intent when he made us. And that intent was for a union of man and woman that would never be broken. What God, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You probably heard that phrase at your own wedding if you're married. I have said it at weddings. Now this doesn't mean this doesn't mean that if you get divorced, we're gonna kick you out of the church. It doesn't mean that if you are divorced, I won't perform your second wedding if I feel that you are truly ready for a, another marriage. It does mean we really should be treating divorce as the last and final option. Now he does, Jesus gives one, one reason for divorce, and that is uh, infidelity, right? sexual immorality. In other words, that has, if, if one of the partners in the marriage has had an affair, they have broken the covenant. And if it's as in effect, they're already divorced. That action divorces the marriage anyway. So what Jesus is saying is the ideal is to never get divorced. The ideal is for the couple to stay together forever. But hardness of heart is still a thing. Divorce is something we should treat as a last option. Now, I know that there are people in our church, probably some of you listening to this podcast, who are divorced. For many of you, um, it was probably not your choice. Um, that happens quite often. I think we should acknowledge that divorce is almost always a, a painful, difficult thing. I'm a firm believer that so long as both people in the marriage are willing to commit to working on the marriage, as long as they are willing to, um, to make the effort to save the marriage, that almost any marriage can be saved. But if one member of that marriage is unwilling to do the work, there's really not much you can do. And that's a harsh reality, and it's really unfortunate, and it's always tragic. Divorce is a fact of life. Jesus tells them, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he's committing adultery. My interpretation of this is that Jesus is identifying a 
an attempt on the part of the men of his day to find a loophole in the laws against uh, uh, both adultery and what we what they would call fornication, what we would just call premarital sex, right? Um, the idea being that I can just divorce this wife, marry this one, and then it's not adultery because I'm married to her and I'm not married to this other woman. And I think Jesus is trying to say, yeah, you may have upheld the letter of the law, but you have violated the spirit of it and God is still going to count this as adultery. Um, in other words, I don't think that's quite the same thing today as people who, for one reason or another, can't make their marriage work and get divorced and then decide later to get married. Now, there may indeed be some people who practice serial monogamy still, right? Um, they marry someone, get tired of them, divorce them, go find someone else, marry them. You know, that, that does happen, but that's not how most divorces happen in the modern world anymore. Um, so, yes, I, I think that... Um, I think that divorce is something we should treat as the the very last option. I would always encourage married couples to do everything within their power to try and save their marriage. But I think we also have to recognize that we are a sinful people living in a broken world and, and divorce is going to happen and sometimes the marriage is going to collapse. Um, and in those moments, I think both we and Jesus will have grace for people. Now, the last thing before we end this week's podcast is we're going to talk about the laborers in the vineyard. Matthew chapter 20. Let me read the parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, too, he said, You go into the vineyard, too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And on the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you gave them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Another great parable of Jesus. This one I think is really important for understanding how Jesus saw his work, but it's also understanding a lot of these, you know, he, he's really, you can you can kind of put this in the same vein, I think, as the parable of the prodigal son, right? The, the idea that, um, okay, here you've got this figure who is who has stuck around, who has worked hard, who feels they deserve more, and they're not getting more. 
So what's going on? What's he talking about? We can look at this in a few different ways, right? Some people have interpreted this as saying, yeah, you know, um, some of us will be faithful followers of Jesus all our lives, and we're going to get the same reward as someone who uh, repents and confesses their sins and accepts Jesus as their Savior on their deathbed. Um, now, I don't recommend waiting until you're on your deathbed to put your faith in Jesus. But there is a sense in which that's true. Someone who cries out to the Lord to save them as they're dying, who's been living as an unrepentant sinner all their life, might indeed be saved. I think that depends on how genuine their belief is, but that's a separate conversation. But there's also something here for his listeners uh, in the first century who were first hearing this. This resistance on the part of the Jewish people to allowing anybody else to receive the same reward from their God. And he's trying to admonish them, saying, Yes, you've been faithful all these years, but God is now choosing to welcome in other people, new people, and give them the same reward as you. And I think the underlying gist of it is this. Salvation is God's business, not ours. We, we don't have the, the right to comment or complain about what God is doing with other people. We don't really have the, the right or the authority to complain if God chooses to give the same reward to someone we don't think is deserving as he's giving to us. Salvation is God's business. It's just the sort of thing we ought to maintain a sense of humility about. God is going to do what God is going to do. We are his workers in the world. And we ought to simply be joyous about being his workers in the world and receiving our due reward. And if that means accepting that many people will do less, come to faith later, perhaps come to faith when it's easier for them instead of enduring some of the hardships and trials some of us might have to endure, uh, we just need to get over it and, and rejoice instead that those people have come to share in the work. So that is it for the Gospel of Matthew. Now, um, I'm going to be leaving on Monday for Israel. I'll be gone until February the 1st. Um, so there's, I, I, I may try and record at least one more podcast here before I leave, but there's going to be at least one week when there is no podcast. I will be trying to do to, uh, send some updates from Israel, but they won't be podcasts. They'll more likely be sort of written posts. Um, so keep an eye on the church Facebook page and on your or on your email account to see if we can send anything uh, from that. You're going to be reading Mark while I'm gone. You're going to read actually almost the whole Gospel of Mark while I'm gone because Mark is so short. Um, but enjoy it. Um, I, I'm super excited to believe. I appreciate all your prayers for traveling mercies as I go. Um, and in the meantime, my, my friends, God bless, and I'll see you on Sunday.